makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Wastelo, Taya, Wachianke, Chante, Wastena, Pechis up yellow. Le Chante, Etaha, Awogalake, Le Unkipiki, He Wastelo. Greetings and good day, and welcome, my relatives. I shake all of your hands with a good heart. This is a voice from Earth. It's good for all of us to be here. You are listening to First Voices Radio and Teokazin Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, or what Americans and Dutch call the Catskill Mountains. Regardless, it is the highlands of the Asopus in the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprouts, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. It's an honor to welcome Zach Khalil, the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians, who is a filmmaker and artist from Bawedding, so-called Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, currently based in Brooklyn, New York. His work has centers in indigenous narratives in the present and looks towards the future. Through the use of innovative nonfiction forms, he's a core contributor to New Red Order, a public secret society which calls attraction towards indigeneity into question, yet promotes this desire and enjoys potential non-indigenous accomplices to participate in the co-examination and expansion of indigenous agency. His work has been established and exhibited at Artist Space, Museum of Contemporary Art, Detroit, yeah, Museum of Modern Art, Whitney Museum of American Art, Lincoln Center, Walker Arts Center, and the Sundance Film Festival, among other institutions. Khalil is a recipient of various fellowships and grants, including the Jerome Hill Artist Fellowship, Sundance Arts Nonfiction Grant, and Gates Millennium Scholarship. And I'm also including the Native Arts Cultural Foundation, which you are a fellow. But I want to welcome you to First Voices. Zach, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
honor to be on the program. Big, big fan. So I don't know where to start except that maybe we share uh, the same story because when we first met in Germany in Stuttgart uh, a few weeks ago at uh, Kunstler House in Stuttgart, it was about um, bringing together other natives from Hawaii and, of course, uh, some contiguous states, including Alaska, and bringing this idea about how do we continue this journey that we have to take through colonialism. And I'm interesting because I want to ask you about this amalgamation of ideas that you put forward in what could be sort of not taken very well, too much of a raw statement, if I was thinking from the Western mind. Just, just quote this name of this new red order. And in reading your story, the, the topic is give it back. What are you talking about, Zach? And clearly, I understand it, but many people may be listening to this radio wondering, give what back? Because you lost the war. That's a great question. Thank you so much for that, Jefferson. I think... Um... Yeah, maybe I'll start, start. I'll start with give it back, just because that's that's the most straightforward thing to address. Um, and maybe I can talk a little bit about the history of New Red Order and where we're coming from specifically. Um, but yeah, I think for, for give it back, um, you know, maybe I'll start with New Red Order. Actually, <laughs> sorry, just just a first things first. Um, yeah, so New Red Order is a, a public secret society. It's a, a group of of native uh, artists and scholars and activists that that we work with. It's sort of a, a rotating ensemble of, of contributors. Um, there's three core contributors. There's myself, uh, my brother Adam Cleal, and uh, Clint sculptor Jackson Pollux. Um, and New Red Order uh, kind of emerges out of contradistinction from this actual secret society that existed uh, in New York and still, uh, sorry, in, in America and still exists, uh, called the Improved Order of Red Men, uh, which is sort of like um, almost like the Freemasons or something like that. Uh, there's sort of like a, a major center for power in America and New York State specifically, and also uh, sort of trace their lineage back to the Boston Tea Party, the sort of foundational act of, uh, of American identity, right? Um, settler colonists dressing up as, as uh, you know, Hodenosaunee Indians and, and dumping tea into Boston Harbor is like the foundational act that created America, right? So like America was created by these settler people who like dressed up as Indian, who played Indian, right? Um, and so New Red Order kind of acknowledges that there's always been this desire for, for native uh, knowledge, epistemologies, um, and, and worldviews um, coming from settler colonial culture. You know, as much as that culture sometimes tries to, to destroy us, they also want to sort of suck our knowledge and our information or our culture from us. Uh, and so that actual organization, the Approved Order of Red Men, is, is a real secret society that still exists so maybe only 15,000 members now. There used to be maybe millions. So maybe now they're a vanishing tribe. Um, it used to be, you know, only whites only up until the 70s. Um, you see men only. There's a degree of Pocahontas for the women. Um, but essentially it's like uh, there are multiple uh, American presidents who are members, including Warren G. Harding and Theodore Roosevelt. And at their meetings, they would get together and, and dress up as, as Native Americans and sort of play Indian and do handshakes and all this sort of madness. Um, and really kind of appropriate uh, some Lenape culture as well, sort of being based in New York. So it's really, uh, to be honest, like a, ter a terrible right-wing fraternal organization with really deep racist roots. It's currently headquartered in Waco, Texas. Um, 
but it still exists, you know, and people are still attracted to it. And what we're interested in is thinking about how how that desire for indigeneity, for, for native knowledge, uh, for native ideas, is something that's so deeply entrenched in American uh, mythology, dreams, and political culture that maybe it can't be removed, right? Maybe, um, maybe it can't be avoided. And of course, that attraction like has all these really negative impacts for indigenous people because it isn't a reciprocal exchange of information. It's always taking, right? It's always taking our practices from us without giving anything back. Um, and of course, that has all sorts of like really horribly violent consequences. But if that desire can't be avoided, what we're interested in is new right order. Is how can we maybe rechannel that desire, um, cultivate that desire, so that it actually serves indigenous people? Um, because if if people have an interest in in our worldview and our epistemologies, um, and we and we just say no, that's an inappropriate interest. You can't engage with that. Um, but I worry about sort of how how our, our people are going to move forward into the future, um, you know, on this land that we share with so many other people now. So we're interested in calling people into indigeneity, into to exploring their own interests and desire, but only if if they're willing to act as accomplices um, towards indigenous people, only if they're willing to to give something to us in exchange, right? And for me, what what, what that is, um, what they need to give back is is all land and life, all indigenous land and life. Um, to kind of get back to what you're saying or asking about our sort of larger project, which is called Give It Back, um, which is, is all about facilitating and encouraging settlers to voluntarily rematriate land to indigenous communities, tribes, or nonprofits. Um, and this work for us really emerged uh, from a lot of uh, interest and some scholarship by um, Tuck and Yang, who wrote this really amazing essay that's uh, called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Um, and it talks about how in academic circles and settler circles, sometimes decolonization as a word is, is thrown about kind of liberally um, and, and is almost used metaphorically as a way of talking about improving the way institutions work or think to make them maybe less settler colonial, um, which there is something to that. But the real core of this essay that, that we love is that, that that's a bit of a distraction. But fundamentally, what decolonization is, is the, the repatriation or the rematriation of all indigenous land and life. And, and saying it's anything less, like adding more indigenous faculty or having more indigenous students at your university, that's not true decolonization, right? Because you can't decolonize a, a colonial institution. If you don't want to actually decolonize in a settler colonial state, you have to give the land back, you know? You have, to, you have to return to all indigenous land and life. And I think some people, when I say that, they that might sound absurd or impossible, right? It's like, it sounds fantastical. It's like, oh, no, that, that, that already happened. How could we possibly undo that? Um, but I would argue that, that we kind of create those conditions of impossibility or those conditions of possibility, right? Like, manifest destiny became a reality because people believed that it was inevitable, and in the same sense, I believe that if if we promote this practice of giving it back and, and we make people feel that the rematriation of all indigenous land and life is inevitable, you know, it took over 500 years to dispossess us of that land. Uh, it doesn't take us take it that long to get back, but maybe it will, you know, and we have that time. So it's all about sort of setting those conditions for, for possibilities, I think, what we think is really important. And I think maybe just the one thing to add to that, too, is that I think also when I say the rematriation of all indigenous land and life, I think some people start to get 
a little fearful, understandably so, because they wonder, like, what about me? Is there a place for me um, in that, right? And and for me, decolonization at its least imaginative, at its most conservative, is just a reversal of roles, right? It's that you oppressed us, so now I'm going to take all the all your land and oppress you. And that's certainly not what I'm advocating for. Maybe some people do, but that's, that's not what I'm advocating for. Um, for me, the rematriation of all indigenous land and life isn't about Native people hoarding all the resources for ourselves and that sort of reversal. It's about sort of uh, centering uh, new political systems and forms of relationship and kinship and reciprocity around the, the land and its original inhabitants. Um, and and that and as we know, this this land is immense and enormous and has such capacity to, to to sustain life, right? So we're not necessarily asking for everybody to leave. And of course, that's not for me to say. That's for each each you know tribal group to decide for themselves. Um, but just just to be clear, it's it's not about everyone goes and only native people are here. It's about forming new forms of reciprocity and relationship and kinship together. That is a great answer, and the acknowledgments that you went through and creating, I love that, create conditions of impossibility. When you're articulating what I would say equilibrium in the sense that you do rather than equality, that's the Western mm -hmm. thought, equality. So we have to climb the ladder of success or not, or be poor, or be rich. But when you talk about equilibrium, I'm sensing you as we are looking for that relationship, not just with our own kind, quote unquote, but we're looking for what you would describe as allies. And to you, there's there's a difference between allies and what what you really, the acronym that you came up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to be clear, um, my my sort of contextualization around uh, accomplices instead of allies actually borrow from uh, Indigenous Action Media or Indigenous Action, which is a really great activist group that uh, put out a great zine called Accomplices, Not Allies, that I recommend everyone checks out. But yeah, it, it essentially frames that it, in a... Uh, and true decolonial struggles um, that uh, allyship is not enough, um, that that a truly decolonial act is inherently against the law. Um, uh, and so in that sense, we don't need allies, we need accomplices. We need people to, to not just support us from behind, but to be fight alongside us, right? And and to put, put their own privilege on the line, right? Um, and so that's why I think for myself, that term accomplices is uh, is much more uh, has much more resonance and meaning and weight than, than allyship. And in terms of what what we're advocating for with non metaphorical decolonization, the rematriation of all indigenous land and life, uh, it's accomplices who are gonna who are gonna make that possible. You know, um, allies will help for sure. Um, and and a lot of this can happen through the system and and legal maneuvers, right? Um, but if, if ultimately the goal is not just a transfer of, of private property from, you know, settlers to, to tribes, ultimately the, the idea is that we have a different relationship to the land that, that isn't defined by property, that isn't defined by the law, right? It might be extra legal or illegal even. And so that's why the, the term accomplice is really important to me. Um, I think the other thing maybe that I, I should have mentioned earlier too is also just that... Um, New Red Order's interest in this Give It Back project to practice and promoting the practice uh, really came from seeing settlers already doing this. Uh, it wasn't something that, that we were like, oh, we, we should really ask settlers to start doing this. It came from research and, and starting to see all these examples pop up of settlers who voluntarily rematriated land to indigenous communities, tribes, or nonprofits. Um, 
like when we were when we first met Kyoko-san out uh, in Stuttgart, Germany, um, with the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation, um, uh, that whole or convening was sort of organized around this um, contemporary art nonprofit, Yale Union in Portland, that decided to give their uh, enormous historical building to the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. Um, and that was uh, sort of a big story in the news that I think uh, attracted a lot of attention and inspired a lot of other similar actions, but also really inspired uh, New Red Order uh, and, and caused us to sort of look into some of these other examples um, and found that, you know, starting in the 90s, uh, up until now, the, the examples really start increasing at an exponential rate, and especially sort of after Standing Rock. Um, there's just all these examples of settlers who have voluntarily rematriated land. And, you know, sometimes it's a few acres, sometimes it's, it's a few hundred, um, and, and all of them are really significant examples. So I really believe that the, the practice has the potential to snowball, you know, and it's like, I don't think it comes from settlers who know that they're not going to wait for the U.S. government to do it. You know, it has to happen on an individual level first. And there's nothing stopping individuals from doing that. So also, if there's anyone interested, uh, anyone listening who's interested in, in rematriating a piece of land that they might have, um, the Red Order is interested in, in compiling those examples and, and facilitating some of those transfers if possible. Um, and we actually have a, a hotline and a website if, if you're interested at a 188 new red one is a, is a number you can call into 188 new red one or you can go to newredorder.org newredorder.org um, just to get a little plug out there because what i'm advocating for might sound fantastical but when i advocate for people people come out of the woodwork and say oh there's this piece of land i didn't know i had no one what to do with for a while um so it, it's not only possible but it's happened you know mm -hmm. no this is this is really good thank you for that um as we and you and I discussed over dinner after our gathering in Stuttgart, um, and in a very loud building, a very loud square building, we had to kind of yell across to each other and kind of read visual eyes and lips and gestures that we were doing to understand each other. <clears throat> and, you know, getting high on sugar and all that, meantime, caffeine and uh, yeah, so and eating steak and all that. I don't eat steak, but I was like watching the, the transformation of native people in the colonial food, you know, like, <laughs> wow, this is interesting. But I wanted to, I wanted to say that one of the things that I talked about that I really wanted you to talk about was, so once people, you know, it's, it's the honeymoon period. Oh, we'll give back land to the native peoples, but it comes with maybe stipulations. It comes with maybe uh, consequences sometimes and maybe native peoples aren't just ready for that. And I'll go back because I think many native peoples aren't studied enough to know, regardless of non-natives not knowing at all, is that at the UN in 2007, the UN defined um, that native people actually don't have ownership, but we have the right to occupy. So, you know, if we can, come from that mist of trying to miss, trying to understand where we really are as native people and accepting land back, but yet not knowing the own legalities or illegalities of our own people that we just can't accept it back because it comes loaded sometimes. And would you explain that? Cause we talked about that. 
Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up. It's a, such a great point. And yeah, it gets into the, the complexity of this, right? It's like, give it back as a, as a clear, easy uh, demand and rallying cry. Um, what happens afterwards is, is, is much more complicated and nuanced and really depends on, uh, of course, like the specificity of, of the location. Um, but yeah, to, to your point, um, you know, accepting property, owning property in the United States uh, is not just a privilege, but a, a burden oftentimes, right? Um, which might come with tax consequences, which might come with maintenance that's necessary, which might come with all these other sorts of burdens. Um, so yeah, give, just giving it back is is not sufficient, right? It's, a, it's the first step, right? Um, and honestly, it's not even the first step. The, the, the first step is forming a relationship with with the, the native community whose land you're on, right? And that's something that, that never stops, right? You don't give it back and then, woohoo, you did it. You have a party, people congratulate you, and then you move on, right? It's like, no, you're, you're, you're starting a, a, a lifelong, a beyond lifelong, intergenerational relationship, right? Um, it's, it's the start of something which won't, won't ever end, hopefully. Um, and it's a sort of a commitment to each other too, right? Uh, to, to that sort of reciprocal relationship. And oftentimes the, that it can't just be land, right? It, it might have to be backed up with resources, financial or in other ways, or, um, or just labor, right? Or, you know, volunteer work. There's a lot of different ways that, that one can um, continue to contribute besides giving back the land itself. There are also examples um, that, you know, that we've compiled where maybe a transfer of land wasn't possible uh, due to tax reasons or, you know, state by state, there's a lot of legal loopholes you might have to work your way through. Um, there is one example where, um, you know, a woman realized that she had Christine Slater, who's a huge inspiration for us, um, and compiled a lot of these examples early on, um, a sort of anti-racist educator, settler colonist, but a true accomplice, I would say. Um, and you know she had inherited, uh, she had inherited some land, but she had inherited some wealth um, from some land that that you know that had been stolen from Native people. And she was able to to do a lot of genealogical research and um, and essentially come up with with a number, figure out what the value of that land was when it was sold by her great grandparents, and the value that she received it was passed down. And then she gave that that money back to a tribe specifically um, after after talking with them about about what what they would want right so the, it's never as simple as like okay sign the deed hand it over what it is 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 you have to reach out to the tribe it's a former relationship to ask what they need tell them what you have and, and ask what they want and that, that might mean signing it over um, but that, that might mean something else um, and, and, and it might mean longer term support and also just to be clear too, there's so many different legal mechanisms um, through which this this can happen by, right? Like land being held into trust, land actually being absorbed into the tribe's own sovereign territory, um, land just being owned privately. Um, there's a lot of different different models, and that's part of what we're interested in too, is in compiling all these examples where it's already happened, so we can share that information with, with folks who are interested in doing it, um, so they can kind of work their way through the red tape a, a little quicker. And we're speaking with Zach Khalil, who is a filmmaker and artist from Bawedding, which is uh, actually, he's, he's from Michigan and near the Sioux St. Marie Reservation based in Brooklyn. So we're going to take a little break here, Zach, and 
I'd like to welcome you all to return here. This is First Voices Radio. My name is Teo Kazin Ghost Horse. And I want to introduce you to Otokian, which is a Siberian indigenous music group that mixes elements of modern pop with local folk music, incorporating traditional instruments, lyrics, and languages. Otukian is a Chilean word for sacred land where warriors would lay down their arms and talk. Otukian's music is performed with traditional instruments such as a kamuz, igil, jaw harp, and rattle, and leather drums. And although these instruments such as a keyboard, bass, guitar, and a saxophone have been used, throat singing is also frequently implemented. Many of the group's sounds, both instrumental and vocal, attempt to mimic the sounds of nature and animals, while the lyrics try to capture the practices, beliefs, and spirit of the indigenous peoples. The language is mostly in Chulium, Tatar, which had only 44 speakers in 2010, and about 25 speakers in 2020. And I'd like to add that thinking about indigenous peoples as animist is way off base because that's a Western thought process. All right, Otukian.
Thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. We continue. This is Teokas and Ghost Horse, and you, the listeners, are so appreciated. Now back to the interview. And we're speaking with Zach Khalil, who is a filmmaker and artist from Bawedding, which is uh, actually, he's, he's from Michigan and near the Sault Ste. Marie Reservation, based in Brooklyn. He's near and not so near. When you talk about the cutting the ribbon, so people are going to give back this land, we're going to cut the ribbon, and then we're going to put a casino on it. I think to me that's a quote-unquote a small red flag because that seems to be the trend. We'll get recognized by the U.S. government and we'll put a casino. But I say there, there's this oversimplification of it is that everybody who gets their land back, they're going to somehow jump back into the capitalistic game and we're going to have a casino and, you know, we're going to get back our land and buy it back. That's valid, that point. But what if everybody, all the native people who got land back had casinos? And to me, that's something else we talked about. I think I talked about it more so when we had our circle, our inner circle in Stuttgart in, in Kunstler House. And I thought this way of thinking kind of began 5,000 years ago in Europe. And there were wars, there were famine, pestilence, and there was property and domination, inquisition, everything was going on, plagues. And everybody was in frenzy trying to get land. They were burying their dead, didn't have time to even mourn their dead, a grief process. So that carried over and it jumped on ships and came over here to the Western Hemisphere. And out of that fear was surviving language, survivor's language. And so survivor's language is something that we didn't know here, that survivor's language is is basically trying to own something and and protecting that ownership or domination. But yet that is still a cultural shock. When when you talk, I feel there's not a survivor's language, but you're aware of the ships coming as a person with a mindset of a view from the shore. Mm-hmm. Would you describe what you think or articulate this survivor's language? Yeah, please. Thank you. Thank you so much for that really deep, thoughtful question. Yeah, I think that survivor's language is, um, like you said, is, is about you know, domination, uh, protection of ownership, but it's really about a sort of scarcity mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a mindset that, that survival is a zero-sum game, that that if you survive, I don't, or if I survive, you don't, and, and that that's the only way that it can operate. Um, you know, I think it's astonishing that, that 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 mindset, you know, entered this new continent, new continents, you know, filled with, seemingly boundless resources, right? Um, but it still didn't change that scarcity mindset, right? That like um, that that need to hoard necessarily. Um, but yeah, I think I think obviously we're at a point in time where that that mindset's quite literally, you know, killing the earth and, and killing all of us and killing all of our other than human kin, right? It, it's 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 literally the end of the world. That that mindset. It's an apocalypse, right? Um, so you talk about your, your view from the shore, right? Like, um, I, you know, I've sort of I, I like the the formulation that that you know Native people have already survived an apocalypse, right? Um, like the the Latin word apocalypse apocalypsis is the root. Uh, it just means an an unveiling. It's uh, sort of like it's the the curtain is being pulled on on a new era of sorts. Um, and you know, I would say 1492 was was an apocalypse for us, um, one one that that we have survived through. Um, and I think now we're we're looking at another apocalypse, um, ecological um, as well as existential, um, because of that 
that survivor sort of mindset or that that scarcity mindset. Um, and because because we're all facing that now together, um, because we're all bound up in that together, it's no longer a zero sum game. Um, it's like uh, this sort of ecological catastrophe makes us realize the ways in which we are bound together in our fate for better or for worse. That I find that a lot of settler colonists who, whether they know it or not, are, are you know deeply steeped and rooted in that that survivor's mindset. Um, that that now they're turning towards our communities and they're turning towards indigenous knowledge systems and they're saying, wait a second, maybe there was something there that that we actually needed that we didn't know that we needed. Um, but now they want it. Now that they're sort of staring down the barrel of, of ecological disaster and extinction, um, and you know, I don't I don't necessarily fault people for that. Like that's a that's a reality that that a colonial reality and, and mindset that we've all been sort of born into and, and been and dropped indoctrinated with, right? Um, and people are now looking towards indigenous people for this knowledge, but they don't know how to access it, and they don't even know how to engage with indigenous folks. Um, because people are coming from such a, a lack of, of information, coming from such a place of ignorance. And again, not not from their, their own fault at all, but just through, you know, being put through the public education system in this country. Uh, you just tend to not know that much, actually, about American history or your your personal relationship to the, the communities whose, whose land you're on. So now people are turning towards indigenous communities for this knowledge, Um but they have no idea how to access it. They don't, have no idea how to give back. They no, have no idea what we want, even necessarily, right? Um, so I think now is the time to really facilitate those those intersectional connections and conversations um, between Native American people and, and everybody else on this continent so that we can start to figure out a way forward that isn't rooted in that that survivor's mindset, which is you know going to kill us all if, if we don't change it. So capitalistic venturing as the West is and Native peoples also playing the game, can't beat them, do you join them? And yes, we can dismantle the structures, but when I say that, I'm not thinking material or physical. Dismantling the, the mental that we have to dismantle those structures that were built up by the programming, as you said, scarcity. And then there is those who, coming from that scarcity, would mean to be visceral, basically a deeper feeling in order to change something. But then there's those who are antipathy, they're disliking those who feel. So there's a lack of intuition. And I'm going to go with this one. And and hopefully that you can disagree with me. It, it doesn't matter. I think it needs to be stirred something here. It's a, it's a small question. Is hope practical? That's a, that's a very deep, very, very good question. Yeah, I would say that there's certainly no one-size-fits-all answer, uh, but but to speak around and hopefully through that, uh, yes, I think hope hope beyond being practical is is necessary as a necessary function for human survival, right? Not to say that hope is always practical. I think that's a, an important caveat. Hope can certainly be impractical. I think it kind of goes back to me what I was talking about earlier in terms of creating the conditions for possibility, right? A lot of sort of New Red Order's thinking also comes from this author, Christopher Bracken, who talks about this notion of, of magical criticism or, or savage philosophy, which are some big words that sort of just describe this idea, this idea that, that language, words, like discourse, the way we, we speak to each other, the worlds that we conjure when we do that, they don't just represent the world, they take its place, right? That 
discourse deploys forces, that representations make reality, right? They don't just describe it. Um, and I feel like as, as Native people, we know this really acutely because of all this sort of noble savage settler colonial propaganda used against us, right? Like we know the Chief Wahoo and all those representations aren't harmless, right? They actually enact real things in the world. But similarly so, yeah, I think I think the the language of hope or the language of providing a path forward, um, I think enables that path to, to be become a reality, a practical, pragmatic reality. And again, not to say that hope always does that. I think, you know, I think you can have uh, unrealistic hopes, which maybe sidetrack you or, or get you off on, on the wrong foot in, in a conversation. But at the same time, I think that the absence of hope or the absence of, of envisioning some positive vision for a path forward is, you know, you know denial of life and is, is essentially quitting, right? And and that's not why we're here. That's not how we're here, right? Yeah. Um, and that's not something that, like, it's something I think we all engage in, in, in time to time, for sure. But that collectively, if, if you know, if we want a, a future for our grandchildren, it's something that uh, it, it can't be all, you know? Yeah. I get what do you think about that, personally? I'm oh, curious. I, th I think there's, there's, you know, you've heard me say that the statement that we, you cannot awaken someone who's pretending to be awake and using all the, the words, um, basically an alchemy of, a one size fits all kind of words, and and I I'm really taking to heart that if if we if hope is practical, then of course for the consequences, nothing's going to happen because you can't just sit and pray. But yet in a lot of languages, there's no word for prayer. All all we mean is to acknowledge relationship, and if we continue to do that, then if you acknowledge relationship, you see the relationship other than anthropocentric is that it's actually required it's a tree is requiring that to give us air uh the water is giving us water it's requiring it, it it's asking of itself that it, it needs to be responsible so i'm saying is hope responsible is hope practical and i say well if you look at it that if without hope what our people did is that we did what was required and now that is needed. Yes, we we've done the prayers, laid down. The awareness needs to return, and that's why I'm saying the mindset has to change. And um, if we can ask, what about me? That's being selfish. But what about all of me, which is a life, all that other than just the individual? So again, I really liked your the fact that you talk about the continued displacement. Are we aware of that? Are we aware about our continued displacement? not just physically or owning land or even the statement, give it back, land back, give it back. And I'm given the story, well, didn't you Indians think it was not your land anyway? Yeah, I've definitely heard that, heard that one before. Um, and yeah, I'd say with my, uh, you know, my collaborator, Jackson Policy, who's playing it from Alaska, he'll be the first one to, to sort of jump on those notions. Um, you know, a lot of people sort of, they generally, oh, Native American people didn't really have a notion of a private property. Um, and of course, you know, we're talking about over 500 different nations, 500 different epistemologies. But uh, from my understanding, from where Jackson's from, up, up in Alaska, the Tlingit culture, they very much believe in private property. And that's very much like a cornerstone of, of their their cultural belief system. So yeah, I think I think also that that's an excuse, you know, used oftentimes to say, oh, Native people aren't even going to, they don't even know how, how to own the land. 
So they, they couldn't possibly. Of course, you know, different, different tribes have different notions. Some tribes don't have those, the same notions. Um, I think legally there's also the, the term usufructory rights, which is about mm-hmm. not ownership but about use, um, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, I think historically there was the idea that Native people didn't didn't use the land because we didn't maybe we didn't farm it. Right. Um, but of course, we were interacting with the biological diversity and all certain cultivating in all sorts of ways through harvesting and, and planting. And so I think that's, that's also a bit of an, an illusion. Right. And just a pretense uh, for, for stealing our land. But, yeah, also to get to your point, though, like give it back. It's not it's not so simple as, as an easy reversal. What we're talking Maybe it has to be at first, maybe to, to sign the deed, the, the deed has to transfer. Um, but I think in, in the long term, what we're talking about is, is creating a different relationship to land um, than private property. And that, that specific relationship will sort of have to be decided by those specific communities. I just want to get back to that hope thing, because I think there's a really good question in relation okay. to this. Uh, just to think of one other thing. Was just that for New Red Order, give it back is one of a multiplicity of tactics to achieve the rematriation of all indigenous land. I sort of really believe in, in Malcolm X's statement by any means necessary. Um, and also think that, that native communities and black communities have, have a lot to learn from each other and, and can work together more in the future. But, you know, by any means necessary, people always take it to mean that violent action, which it certainly does and can. But any means means any means too. And that's sort of like uh, our interest in the Give It Back project. You know, we're, we're certainly... Um, interested in, in, in any means to, to rematriate land and life, whether uh, illegal, extra-legal, violent, non-violent. I'm not under the illusion that we're going to get all of it back voluntarily, right? But by any means, means let, let's ask for it, too. Let, let's, let's talk to those settlers who are interested, who are sympathetic, who do have that feeling, um, and, and get them to, to contribute what they're willing to contribute. And then we can see what, what other options we have from there. Thank you for this interview, Zach Khalil, and to your brother Adam and to your friend Jackson Paulus. And uh, did I not ask you a question that you wanted to to say or some comment? I think you, you covered so much territory. And yeah, I just really appreciate the the depth of your questions. Really, really got me thinking in a lot of ways. But yeah, I would, I would just say anyone who's, who's interested, 188-NewRedOrder.org. Don't hesitate to, to follow up, reach out. Um, New Red Order, we're constantly recruiting. People are welcome to join. Um, so please uh, dial up or, or log in. Just for time's sake, I think I need one one more question. Is, is that you take it like, okay, that a secret society that plays Indian, which was an improved order of red, red men. So when these non-natives were playing Indians, that's something totally out of context anyway with Columbus. And so is it possible for Native people to play Indians the way it's described from the Order of Red Men? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, Great, great question. Uh, I would say certainly, yes. That's another thing about the New Red Order is sort of interest in the desire for indigeneity. Um, desire for this indigenous knowledge or epistemologies um, that in our formulation of it, it's, it's not a desire that just non-native people have. It's a desire that native people have. Indian people want to be Indian too, right? Like we've had our culture so brutally stripped from us for so long. We we want that back, right? Um, but the other reality is that 
that the the prevalence of these sort of settler colonial noble savage propaganda done so much that, that when we look to, towards back, sometimes that's all we see, right? Is those sort of like playing Indian representations. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's definitely something that, that we engage in and in different ways to a certain extent. And that we all have that desire, right? But I think the, the ways in which we do that um, are very different <laughs> than the ways in which the improved order of Redmond do it. It's a very nuanced uh, distinction, I would say, in, in, in conversation. Even to, to say that Native people play Indian is maybe con controversial, um, but I think it's a reality that maybe we can all yeah. acknowledge in our own lives in, in different ways. Um, I feel it sometimes when I put on my yeah certain hats or pieces of clothing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I I used to have something I was didn't want to wear on my head. The one says Native Pride. I never wanted to wear that one at all. So <laughs> like that, well, that means I'm Native. It's it's it, you're right in in that we have to question indigeneity or you know our attraction towards indigeneity, bring it into question um, in ourselves. Am I just doing? Am I performing for someone? Am I performing yeah. for? Others that I see, I'm native. I don't look it, but I feel it. And I was an Indian in my past life type of thing. You know where I'm going with that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, no, definitely. It's very real. Well, okay. This is this is so good. And I love that statement. Decolonization is not a metaphor. And, and yeah. you got to get real with this. And man, it's just an honor to talk with you again. I give you a fist pump. And uh, boom, yeah. And um, thanks again. We're going to have you on again. Just keep it up, Zach. And it's good to have you. And as we know, listeners, this is Zach Khalil. We're talking with, he's based in Brooklyn, New York. And would you give that number again? Yeah, yeah. One eight 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 new red one. One eight 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 new red one. Or uh, newredorder.org. Uh, okay. Newredorder.org. Callers, log in. And yeah, thank you so much, Jefferson. Uh, it's such an honor to be on the program. Thanks, everyone. Ojibwa friend out of Michigan, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And to continue First Voices Radio, my name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. So we're going to go on out here with several selections. Um, one is by Plex, Red Flags out of Canada, featuring Aaliyah Bell. Then we're going to go back to one of the introductions with the band Otukan out of Siberia, an indigenous band made up of several players and performers, actors, what not that musicians. This one is named Imba. I'd like to say thank you for listening to First Voices Radio. And thanks to our producer, Liz Hill. Thank you for you to the listeners and to all the radio stations out there that reach out to us, First Voices Radio. Thanks for joining us again.
let's finish this. I'm sick of this. Calling yourself indigenous. Don't even know the differences between eagles and pigeons, kid. Lying about who you are, thriving off of who you know. Captain Lou Albino got me rhyming in the studio. Something missing from your claims and that's apparent. There's more native DNA in the tracks you sharing. If it wasn't for collabs, bringing natives to the lab. I can't even count the times you cross the line like a scab. Let's go, Dan. Dude's real newfie with the accent. Talking about that land back. Give it back, Van. Son, how's your melanin? I burn Anglo-Saxons. If you ain't down to fist fight, let's settle it on wax then. Senior citizens out in Halapu. Wasn't on my radar till you showed up giving attitude. Paperwork, show pics of your cocomas. I'll show you all my college diplomas. They ain't real. The notion ain't no about the struggle. Every single native rapper in your bubble. Here's Plex clearing up any confusion. He fooled a couple dummies. Now he thinks we're all stupid. Up our spaces and we've had enough of you. It's red flag. 